Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. The human zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On talk radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is a big day in the Independent Republic. Here in the UK, all the political parties have until 4pm to select their candidates for the election on December the 12th. Will there be any last-minute deals done? We will bring all that to you right here, of course, on Talk Radio. Over in America, the Democrats will hold day two of their impeachment inquiry against President Donald Trump, which he has called a witch hunt, and the White House Press Secretary has called a colossal waste of taxpayer time and money. Today, we have a special guest to give his views of both that historic impeachment process in Washington and the election battleground here, which is starting to heat up. That man is the man who invented populist politics. He is the political strategist who is responsible for keeping Donald Trump in the race in 2016 when everyone else was urging him to quit. He was the chief executive officer of the Trump presidential campaign and chief strategist in the Trump White House. He's been called the great manipulator by Time magazine, who asked in 2017 if he was the second most powerful man in the world. That man is Steve Bannon, and he joins us this morning on the Independent Republic exclusively. You will not want to miss a minute of it. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll also be talking immigration, one of the many big issues of the campaign so far. Pretty Patel is warning that Labour's policies would result in an increase of 840,000 more people coming into this country, while the Tories are vowing to reduce immigration overall with a points-based system. Who are you supposed to believe in this conversation? Uh, and all of this comes as we discover that Britain has more illegal immigrants than any other country in the European Union. There could be as many as 1.2 million. Is anyone really surprised? 0344 499 1000. Oh, Donald Tusk has been interfering in the election campaign as well. Is anyone complaining about that? No, I didn't think so. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, immigration has always been a massive political battleground between the Tory party and the Labour party. Uh, We've got 1.2 million illegal immigrants, uh, it is thought now in this country, many of whom, probably most of whom, would have come here under Tory governments and under Tory immigration rules. So, uh, if there are that many illegal immigrants coming here and more coming here than 
there are in any other part of the EU, uh, in any other country of the EU, then clearly something isn't working very well in the immigration system. The, the point system which they operate in Australia is apparently going to be adopted by Priti Patel and this uh, particular Tory party if they get re-elected to government. The Labour Party are not quite so sure what their policy is going to be on freedom of movement. That all seems to be a bit up in the air, depending, of course, on whether they get in and whether they decide to give us all a second referendum. Let's talk to John Rental to try and make sense of it all. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Well, I mean, uh, the election process is well underway. The the, uh, the sort of the claims and the uh, statements and the, uh, I don't want to say lies, but uh, things that are being said which may turn <laughs> no, out not to be... we don't use that kind of language. No, we it's don't. We, cer we certainly don't. Yeah. But this immigration conversation uh, has taken a bit of an interesting turn, whereby Priti Patel is claiming that the Labour Party's policies would mean an extra 840,000 people coming here. I'm not quite sure yeah. how she works that out. No, and uh, the, the Conservative press release, which I've just read, uh, in order to prepare myself properly for coming on your excellent programme, yes. um, does not explain uh, the basis for that 840,000 figure. But uh, what it does is uh, it, it says that Labour wants to extend free movement of people uh, beyond not just not just wants to keep it for the for the European Union, but it wants to ex extend it beyond that. To the rest of the world, and Labour, of course, has put out a statement saying, "No, no, we don't. That's not what uh, that's not what the policy that was passed at our party conference actually says." Now, so I've read, I've, I've even for the service your to your listeners, Mike, I've even read the Labour Party uh, motion that was carried at the party conference uh, in in October. Yeah, uh, and it's clear, and it's true, it is completely ambiguous as to what it means. It does it does talk about extending free free movement. Uh, but you know, the Labour the, the Labour press operation is saying that just means extending the rights of free movement uh, to either giving giving uh, EU citizens more rights. It doesn't mean extending it beyond Europe. But in that case, why uh, why pass such a such a badly worded motion? Well, quite. And I suppose uh, inevitably we can't really work out what Labour Party policy would be on immigration, depending on what happens vis-a-vis -vis, one the election result and two um, a second referendum if they were to get well, into power. Exactly. I mean, obviously, I mean, Labour Party's policy is going to be uh, to have this second uh, referendum. And everybody knows that the Labour Party's position in that referendum is going to be uh, to campaign to remain. Uh, and if, if we remain in the EU, then we keep uh, free movement. And so, in, in essence, you know, Labour's immigration policy is not to change uh, free movement, which is the most important part of it, I suppose. Although, you know, actually, we get more, more net immigration from outside the EU, but that's... Uh, that's not something that we would expect a Labour government to take a particularly hard line on. And that's, that's the difference between the two parties. I mean, Priti Patel, when she's asked, will say that she wants, uh, she wants immigration to be lower. Uh, whereas Jeremy Corbyn, if he's asked that same question... Uh, won't give a straight answer. And the trouble with the Tory party's promises on immigration in the past is that they've always said they want immigration to be lower, uh, but it doesn't Indeed. always work out that then that's what happens. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, Theresa May stuck to that uh, that figure of uh, trying to get net, net immigration down below 100,000. And the point is she didn't even manage to, to achieve that for, for net immigration from outside the EU, which is the one bit that she could control as, as, as Home Secretary and then as Prime Minister. Uh, I mean, David Cameron didn't seem to care very much that he was promising uh, to get net immigration down to tens of thousands and uh, had no prospect of, of, of reaching that figure. He just sort of, uh, he just 
said that's Theresa May's problem. Yeah, and also we know from the uh, illegal immigration figures that at least a 1,000 people have travelled here from uh, the, the French coast, basically, on these dirigible boats which have come in to various beaches and points across the UK. Um, and yeah. all of those people, once they've got here, have stayed here. That's right. I mean, and, and that terrible um, tragedy in, uh, in Essex, with those uh, 39 people dead in a, in a, in a truck, um, did suggest that, you know, that's a fairly large scale uh, operation of, uh, of illegal immigration that's, that's going on. I mean, and nobody knows how many, uh, how many got in and didn't die. So, you know, um, it's clearly a very big problem. Uh, but it all, I mean, in an election campaign, it all comes down to a very simple choice, doesn't it? I mean, because everyone just assumes that the Conservatives will try a bit harder than a Labour government would to try and get control of the, uh, of the issue. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's got a big task on his hand to, to persuade us that he would actually administer the immigration system more efficiently than, than a Tory yes. government would. And this is, again, leading us into that same kind of cul-de-sac of, of doubt, really, because he can't possibly lay out what his manifesto is. I understand they're going to be working on their manifesto and releasing it sometime over the weekend in conjunction with trade unions and everybody else that has to be part of the process. But it's going to be yeah. very difficult for them to make policy without knowing whether we're going to be in the EU or not, aren't they? isn't it? Well, except that, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any doubt as to what the Labour Party's official position on that will be when the time comes. I mean, I think, you know, the party members are all, uh, are all remain, 80% Remainers. I mean, you, you do have some powerful voices at the top. You've got Len McCluskey, um, who's, I think he's, he's in Guardian today, saying uh, that he, you know, he thinks we should leave the EU and, and end free movement. Yes. So there is, a, there is a dispute in the Labour Party. But, I mean, I think overall, I think there's no doubt about which way the Labour Party is, is leaning on that question. They want to stay in the EU and keep free movement. Yes, but also it, it sort of leads to conversations on the doorstep, does it not, if they start talking about immigration in a big way, where people will say, well, what happens if we're still in the EU? Or what happens if we're not? And then they, you know what I mean? They sort of, they're, yeah. they're, putting, them, <laughs> they're putting themselves in a situation they don't want to be in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but uh, that's, you know, that is the fence that, that Jeremy Corbyn has chosen to sit on. And, uh, you know, he's he's trying to fend off uh, Joe Swinton on the other side. I mean, she's uh, she's very clear about her EU policy. Uh, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn wants to try to, to, to hog as much of that Remainer vote as he can, uh, while while hanging on to some some Leave voters in uh, in, in Labour heartlands. Mm. And I mean, we were talking yesterday about the polls now showing a 14-point lead for uh, the Tories in those sort of 317 seats, with, which the Brexit Party have said they're not going to um, fight. Basically, um, by the end of today, we'll have all the kind of candidates in place. Are you expecting yeah. there to be any any sort of surprises between now and four o'clock when all of that happens? Yes, no, I do think there will be some individual Brexit Party candidates who will uh, fail to put in their nomination papers uh, because, uh, you know, we've seen Brexit Party candidates standing down uh, in various parts of the country saying they don't want to split the Leave vote, and that was part of the pressure that was on Nigel Farage to uh, to do his unilateral uh, pact, as he called it. Yeah. Um, and I, I suspect there'll be more of them, but, but, I mean, Nigel Farage yesterday said he wasn't going to be standing down in... Uh, in Tory target seats that are currently held by Labour. But I, I just think that in a, in a number of places, I think we'll see 
the individual candidates taking uh, taking unilateral action. Yeah, and given that, uh, rightly or wrongly, immigration was quite a major factor for some people in the referendum in 2016, uh, as far as leaving the European Union was concerned, is it likely yeah. to become a big factor, do you think, a big debating point, once we have the TV debates, once we have, um, you know, the sort of going down to the wire time in the next couple of weeks? Oh, I think so. I mean, it is one of those one of those issues that the, the media don't particularly like to talk about, mm. but it is one of the top issues that the people care about. If if you ask them what are the issues facing the country, although to be fair, actually, you ask people what are the issues facing the country, and they say Brexit, the, the NHS, and immigration. Yeah. But if you ask them what are the issues face, you know that, that matter most to them and their families, immigration drops right down right down the list. I mean, most people don't think it personally affects them. I mean, I think they get. That they, they do worry about the principle of uh, of a country that can't control uh, who's coming in and who's not. Yeah. I mean, I think it seems to me to be an important issue if it's affecting you, i.e. if you're living in one of those cities or towns where it would appear that quite a lot of immigration from one particular place has happened. You know, for yeah. example, lots of people came from the Czech Republic and somehow ended up in Peterborough for some reason. Yeah. not quite sure yeah. why. Um, but obviously, if you live in Peterborough, that's an issue for you. If you live in the east end of London, you might be more concerned about uh, immigration coming in from, say, countries outside of the European Union. You know what I mean? So, But if yeah, you live in absolutely. sort of rural Dorset, where really nobody comes there at all, uh, from anywhere else other than rural Dorset and London, um, you yeah. know, you probably don't care. Well, and also, I do think that immigration is one of those, those issues where if you care about it, you've already made up your mind which, which, which party to support. And it's usually, you know, if, if you want tighter uh, restrictions on immigration, then you're more likely to vote Conservative. I mean, why would you why would you vote Labour in that it, 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 if, if that was the thing that really mattered to you? So I doubt if it's if it would if it would move large numbers of votes, but it is important to a lot of people, and therefore it probably will come up in the TV debates. You're yeah, absolutely right. right. Mm. And what about the the sort of the nature of the debate so far, uh, as, as as you're seeing it? Because it seems to me, as we, we've said many times, this is going to be quite an unusual election. It's going to be quite an important election, um, but it's being operated and run in this kind of a strange way. It seems to me. I don't know whether I've just been looking at it for too long or my eyes are starting to glaze <laughs> over. But, you know, this whole kind of this whole kind of campaigning mode seems to be something... There's something wrong with it all somehow. I don't know. Well, I can't put my finger on it. I know what you mean. I mean, there is a sort of slight feeling of, uh, of, of a phony war at the moment. Yeah, it's kind of surreal, uh, isn't it? Because, um, you know, we don't have... You know, in the old days, we had uh, we had a very strict routine. You had a morning press conference from each of the each of the main parties. And uh, the sort of issues that, that came up in those press conferences would tend to sort of dominate the day of campaigning, whereas it's a bit more sort of unfocused and random now. And I think I do think Boris Johnson's personality has got quite a lot to do with that. I mean, you know, watching his speech yesterday, I mean, it was it was very entertaining and all that. And it is it is it, it, it is unfortunately, I have to admit, it is fun to watch a politician who enjoys using language yeah. in such a sort of uh, interesting way. Uh, I mean, such a relief after Theresa May. Um, but there wasn't much content there. I mean, you didn't feel that you know he was actually getting to grips with the issues or presenting himself as a as as someone who's going to uh, administer the country in a sort of efficient and effective way. No. But you you were entertained by you know him talking about the only sort of hard crouton of fact in the ministry <laughs> of muddle that is Labour's Brexit policy. I mean, that, that sort of stuff is entertaining. There's no, no question about it. Is. It is. And I think the pictures of Boris kind of rather gingerly at the helm of an electric taxi driving at, a, at about one mile an hour, which is probably the reenactment of driving around London, to be fair, at that sort of speed. It just didn't look like... I mean, if you wanted a man, you know, the sort of Margaret Thatcher on a tank image, that wasn't it. 
No, that, that is not it. But, you know, it is a sort of have I got news for you type election. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think but that's Boris absolutely right. Does, he does entertain people. And, you know, the question is to what extent people think that that translates into uh, being a good prime minister of the country. Yeah, well, we shall see. John, as ever, thank you very much indeed. John Rental, there, chief political commentator at The Independent. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. By four o'clock this afternoon, uh, you will find out which candidates are running where, uh, which candidates are standing down, uh, which people are sort of tactically removing themselves from the uh, uh, the stromash, be it as it may, whether they be from the Brexit Party, the Lib Dems, the Tories, the Labour Party. There's an awful lot of sort of jiggery-pokery going on, uh, cephology-wise, I'd have to say, and I don't find it particularly edifying. Let's talk to James Max, who is, of course, business this breakfast presenter uh, here at Talk Radio, and uh, he's on every morning, uh, and you can get him up very early in the morning if if you so wish. I wonder, James, whether you have ever managed to get something delivered to your home uh, which has ever had something substituted that you didn't want. Uh, I have never had substitute, and uh, hello, Mike. Um, I've never had stuff substituted, but they have sent the wrong things. They've sent broken things. They've sent things that then need to be repaired, and it, it's it, oh. It's quite stressful. Yeah, I mean, we're not just talking about food deliveries here because, I, I mean, I sort of gave up with one particular uh, supermarket brand because they kept bringing me stuff that was either wrong um, or the eggs were broken all over it um, without really a care in the world for what it was they were giving you. Some of the stuff they were picking was pretty awful. But the final straw was when a guy... I live in a sort of a third-floor uh, flat above uh, the river... And if you come in from the very ground floor, it's four floors, right? This guy rang me from the floor below mine to say, are you coming down one floor to get your groceries? And I said, well, no, because I've ordered it to be delivered to my door, not to the floor below. And uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't come upstairs. He said, I've already done three floors. That's all I have to do. Oh. And I just said, well, you can take them all away again then. And he was quite upset. He's like, well, what do you mean take them away? I was like, I don't want them. Get rid of them. Take them back. <laughs> I never used them again. Well, I think this is beginning to expose some of the difficulties that we got with delivery. Because, look, if you go to a shop, you can choose the stuff yourself. And, and here's the thing, I think, about supermarket shopping particularly. I like to pick the stuff which has got the longest date. Yeah. If you're picking fruit and vegetables, as much as the supermarket would like to homogenize them, um, there is a difference, and some are nicer than other ones, and you can choose. And the other thing is that if you are a larger gentleman or a larger lady, maybe one should follow the mantra that if you can't carry it home, maybe you shouldn't buy it. And, and <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's worked for me particularly. Anybody who's seen one on the telly recently, it's clearly not working. I just go to the supermarket more often. But I think this is a this is a major problem, though, because we've clogged up our streets having things delivered. We've got uh, people who are... Um, if you haven't got machines picking things, they are going to make mistakes from time to time, and they are going to run out of things because, say, for example, you go to your local supermarket and they've run out of the particular kind of sauce or the, or the spaghetti or the whatever it is that you want to buy. Funnily enough, 
you'll make a decision and you'll either go without or you'll find something else. You don't really want somebody else to substitute it for you. Well, exactly right. And I mean, the story that we're looking at today is uh, a couple called Graham uh, and Janice Shaw from Northampton who ordered two crockery sets online. I'm not quite sure why you would order crockery uh, online because you definitely would want to carry that home, I would have thought, because you'd be worried it would turn up uh, like that scene from Pet Detective, you know, where the guys just kicked it all over, all over the place. Um, but they, they couldn't get the crockery service, so instead it was substituted for some Play-Doh, which is quite the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Uh, it, it is um, sort of ridiculous, but then on the other hand, I, I'm enjoying the comments online on this one, which is uh, you pay peanuts, you get Play-Doh. Uh, because the thing is, I mean, a whole dinner service or two of them for 76 quid, it's not the greatest. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm afraid you're showing your, your snobbery now, James. I mean, I know we know that you advise uh, wealthy people on how to spend their money, but I mean, you know, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with a cheap and cheerful crockery set, is there? There is nothing wrong with a cheap and cheerful crockery set, but then on the other hand, if you are expecting somebody to deliver a whole 12 piece dinner set for 76 quid you know and the margins on that are so small are so thin um chances are guess what they are going to make mistakes i mean there are a lot of people saying well why is this even a story on mm. the basis that the supermarket took away the play-doh straight away they admitted that they made a mistake they're sending the stuff that the people ordered and they're sending some kind of gift or others so, yeah well the know, reason let me let me explain to anyone who doesn't understand how the news works it's a story because it's funny it's a story because it doesn't happen very often and it's a story that says we would probably rather you didn't hear about Oh, now, you see, it's that last part, which I, I'm thoroughly enjoying, because there are plenty of stories about Sainsbury's that uh, <laughs> they probably wouldn't like us to hear about. But then, look, I think this is, this is inevitably going to happen more and more as we decide that we're getting lazy and we want people to deliver stuff. We've created this world in which we used to go to stores to go and pick things up, and now we want everything delivered, and then we wonder why the traffic is so bad, we wonder why the pollution is bad, we wonder why expenses and costs are going up, and why shops on our high street are disappearing. You know, this is kind of a, a technological change, and I wonder whether the uh, unintended consequence of this is we're going to have to have more time for dealing with mistakes that other people make, and we're going to probably have to pay more for our goods and services, even though the Internet promised that they were going to be cheaper, because at some point somebody's going to make us realise that it's this last mile of delivery it's cheaper if you do it yourself yeah. rather than they do it for you. Well, I must admit, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the clogging up of the roads as well because that's one of my bugbears. I always say to people, it's all very well talking about, you know, uh, the brilliant efficiency of the internet and how you can now get anything delivered to your house within a day or sometimes I think now there's an Amazon um, account you can have where they promise to deliver stuff to you the same day. They do. But, I mean, all of these uh, services are using four-wheel uh, delivery systems, generally speaking, big vans or quite big lorries, um, and I, it must be clogging up the road. There must be there must be a reason why the congestion is getting worse. There is. I mean, it, to some extent, software is beginning to help us with this in the same way that we used to have a postal service. And guess what? You had one, and if you were lucky, you used to have two deliveries of postage. Yeah. And of course, now you don't. So the the delivery companies have found a way that they have these circuits that they go on. And the more urban your area, the more that they're doing that circuit every day. You may or may not have something delivered. If you do, they'll stop off for you that day and it's in the back of their van. Boom, off you go. But I think what we've forgotten, though, is the amount of rubbish and packaging that we're creating from this. I don't know whether you've had anything delivered from that uh, lovely shop that Mr. Bezos owns. Uh, that very often a very large box yes. will turn up for a very small item. Within. Absolutely. Or, even worse, because of the way their logistics work, You've ordered three things on the same day thinking they'll all arrive at once. Oh, no. Because they come from different warehouses and everything else, 
three deliveries, three boxes, three, ugh, you know. Oh, I know. It is absolutely maddening. And unfortunately, um, when I get stuff delivered down to Sussex, which is quite a difficult address to find, quite often it doesn't actually arrive. It gets taken somewhere completely different, uh, which has got a similar sounding address, but a completely different postcode. Well, I've got a couple of bottles of uh, wine which have been delivered to my next-door neighbourhood one. Uh, he's uh, away at the moment, and they're sort of sat in my hallway. And the, the amount of times you become a delivery office for your neighbours. Oh yeah, well um, that's another thing. I don't see. I won't do that. Sometimes I'll get these guys ringing the, the doorbell. Uh, it used to happen to me more when I was at home during the day more. Um, and they would be like, "Oh, can you just take this?" I'm like, "No, I can't take this for somebody else because one, I very rarely see my neighbours. I don't really know who any of them are, uh, and I'd probably have to knock on his door at about ten o'clock at night to give it to him. Um, so I'm not doing it. So take it away. Thanks." Well, exactly, and I think we, we, you know, we have ended up with these very strange situations in which uh, the cost of doing this is probably going to come home to roost at some point that people are going to realise, I hope, that maybe, for example, the idea of actually going to a central delivery place, i.e. your shopping high street, is a good idea. But like everything, sometimes it has to die in order for it to be reinvented. So here we are maligning the, the, the loss of our high street resource. Mm. Years ago, we used to have these tea shops on the corner of every uh, high street and every corner, and they were called Lions Tea Shops, and then they went out of fashion, and then somebody came along and they said, oh, well, we'd like a coffee shop, and then, of course, now we have coffee shops on the corner, which do sell cups of tea as well, and they've reinvented it. They delivered it in a different way. They give all the sort of different drinks and ramped it up and, and turned it into something that we as society and, and fashion said we wanted. So the high street and various other things will be reinvented because yes. there's no way that all this stuff can be delivered to us and there's no way that the current model of just whatever you want and have it delivered to your home is sustainable. It just isn't. No. Funnily enough, I went into the post office yesterday for the first time in many a year. Uh, there's one just down the road from the from the office here. Wow, you and me both. Yeah, You've I mean, I couldn't. Office. I can't actually remember the last time I've been. I was in a post office because the one in in my town in Sus Sussex has been shut down. So it's not there anymore. Um, it was a massive queue. It was quite efficient, uh, but they had a great big sign up saying you could bring in all manner of um, things that had been delivered to your home if you wanted to send them back to where they came from which must clog up the post office ridiculously, mustn't it? Well, it must do, but then on the other hand, I mean, there was a queue snaking out of my post office yesterday, so I guess loads of people are still going there, uh, but it was snaking out because they, I don't know, they had, you know, eight tills, but only three of them yep. and uh, <laughs> And then we're getting that time of year when you've got to, oh, do your Christmas parcels. I mean, this is the other weird thing, is that use any courier service, it'll still be delivered next day or the day after. Mm. Uh, yet our postal system, oh, no, Christmas posting. Yeah, better, get a, better, 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 better get, get it in, in by the, better get it in by the end of November. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is bonkers. And then the other thing, of course, which has sort of disrupted all these things, is that if you buy on certain online supermarkets and, and, and shops, and this is where it is helpful, you can have it delivered pretty much anywhere in the world. So you can buy gifts for friends and relatives. Yeah. You do it in good time. You can set the date that it's done. They're trying to make things convenient. And I suppose what we have to remember is that with all the things that we all complain about, all oh, they don't do this and all oh, they don't do that and all oh, the streets are busy, Maybe some of the things that, because of the way we live our lives, it allows us to do other things. I mean, mm. how many times, talking of delivery, how many times, particularly if you live in an urban area, have you thought, oh, I can't be bothered to go to the supermarket? Oh, I'll just check out a cheeky takeaway app and <laughs> a couple of taps later, and yep. mm, delicious. I know. It's delivered. And you don't care that the fact that it's cost a little bit more, it's just 
saved you the bother of just I don't know ruining your kitchen. No, and you're absolutely right. We, we are a very we've become a very lazy society, I'm afraid. But you know, hey, that's the nature of the beast. James, thank you very much indeed. James, backs uh, back tomorrow morning, of course, with the uh, talk radio business breakfast. Uh, don't miss it. You should never miss it. If you're up that time of the day, uh, he's on before Julie Hartley Brewer, uh, who takes over at six thirty. He's on at five, of course. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is a big day in the Independent Republic. Here in the UK, all the political parties have until 4pm to select all their candidates for the election on December the 12th. Deals may be done. The Brexit party may be doing something with the Tory party. We don't know. We'll bring you all of that as it happens. Over in America, the Democrats will hold day two of their impeachment inquiry against President Donald Trump, which he has called a witch hunt, and the White House press secretary has called a colossal waste of taxpayer time and money. Today, we have a special guest to give his views of both that historic impeachment process in Washington and the election battleground here, which is starting to heat up. That man is the man who invented populist politics. He is the political strategist who is responsible for keeping Donald Trump in the race in 2016 when everyone else was urging him to quit. He was the chief executive officer of the Trump presidential campaign and chief strategist in the Trump White House. He's been called the great manipulator by Time magazine who asked in 2017 if he was the second most powerful man in the world. That man is Steve Bannon and he joins us right now on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The times are very febrile here in London. The times are very febrile in Washington as well. Uh, it's now time to welcome Steve Bannon, uh, former Trump strategist, the man who invented Donald Trump, the President of the United States of America. Steve, a very good morning and welcome to Talk Radio. Mike, thank you very much. As, as President Trump says, I'm his top student. He was his <laughs> architect. I was, I was just proud to be uh, part of the team that... Uh, was surrounding him at the end when he he won his great victory. But well, thank listen, you so much for the kind words. Well, listen, welcome to the most popular talk radio station in the country because we are on the on a roll here, Steve, and we wanted to talk to you this morning because you are someone who understands what it is that's going on politically around the world. You're watching this impeachment process in Washington. I watched it yesterday afternoon kind of uh, open-mouthed really with some of the things that were being said because there's so many different views on what is happening. Well, it's actually quite stunning you know, what we did here. Uh, my colleagues and I, particularly people that were involved in uh, in, in Brexit, uh, Raheem Kassam and Jason Miller, who is the chief communication strategist for the 2016, we've actually set up a war room 
about four weeks ago. We have a war room with polling, uh, surrogates, opposition research, uh, rapid response, and we have a daily podcast radio show that's now being picked up nationwide throughout the country. So we follow this 24 hours a day and actually are there to support President Trump in his efforts to avoid impeachment. The thing that seems to be so baffling for us over here watching it is that the Republicans are completely dismissing it out of hand. Even the Republicans in the House, they're just saying this is a a star chamber. Uh, The witnesses were being kind of cajoled by the Republican uh, nominee. And then, of course, you get uh, Adam Schiff, who's talking about terrible, uh, terrible crimes being committed by the president, something that has to be dealt with. I mean, what's the truth of all of this? Well, it's pretty stunning yesterday. You know, they had the opening salvo with Ambassador Taylor and uh, Assistant Secretary uh, Kent. And if you look at it objectively, we watched, you know, all, I think, eight hours of it and had rapid response going. Uh, it just seems to be a difference in policy. I mean, this is the difference, and in, in, in this is really driven by Brussels uh, and the EU. This is an entire policy over the Ukraine, really going back to 2013, 2014. It's just a difference in policy. I mean, President Trump is a strong believer in America first, which is you want to have allies, you want to have people involved in these situations versus the kind of John McCain, Barack Obama, John Kerry, uh, Hillary Clinton policy that was, uh, that was you know, you want to force uh, Ukraine into the EU and think about bringing them into NATO. What President Trump did here, and if you look at the logic that's presented by the Republicans, it's pretty straightforward. He wanted to make sure that American money was not going into a corrupt situation and also to make sure that allies, particularly Germany and France and others, were going to put some money into the till here. And so it's pretty straightforward. The Democrats have really weaponized this and, and tried to criminalize it. They have the votes. I mean, this is the thing about our system over here in the House. Elections have consequences. They have the votes to actually impeach them. I mean, we've started a formal process. The reason, Mike, we set this war room up, we didn't believe the MAGA base. We didn't believe President Trump's base and the establishment Republicans were taking this seriously enough. Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff are driving a process, which I think all the witnesses will all be called by next week. And they will vote to actually bring two articles of impeachment against President Trump sometime in mid to late December and, and vote to impeach him. But in terms of the actual evidence against him, it appears to be very much third-hand. It appears to be from whistleblowers who are not being named. Um, and one of the things that astonished me yesterday was the kind of very throwaway comment that was made that President Putin was actually not willing to accept Ukraine being adopted by the European Union, putting the European Union right at the centre of this. And nobody's really picking up on that in the States. This is the central part of it. I mean, this is why we hope, and I, uh, our logic here at the at War Room Impeachment, which is this podcast and radio show, is to drive the message. We're finally going to have a debate on America first national security policy, which is, does not mean America as an isolationist country. What it means is that we want allies, which in the vital national security interest of the United States, for instance, in NATO or the Persian Gulf or the South China Sea or up in the Northwest Pacific, we're going to have you know allies. We're, we're not an imperial power. And that's one of the things that the, the permanent political class, both the Republicans and the Democrats, have kind of made, turned America into this imperial power where we have protectorates all over the world. We have a $1 trillion defense budget. And the deplorables, you know, my daughter's a West Point grad. She served in Iraq. I'm a naval officer that served in the Pacific and the, in the Persian Gulf. Uh, you know, the deplorable sons and daughters are the ones in the 38th parallel in Korea. They're, they're on the ships in the South China Sea. They're, they're walking, you know, on patrol in the Hindu Kush and in Eastern Europe. And so what we want is, is allies. And that's what President Trump's trying to drive for. That's the, that's the basis of, of what this argument's about. I think yesterday, the stunning thing, Mike, if you watch it all day, the media is going crazy on this bombshell that was revealed. 
this was a phone call from a restaurant that had never been brought up before. I mean, it kind of beggars belief that a phone call that, you know, one ambassador heard by a staffer that they heard President Trump talking about this in a, in a crowded restaurant would now be the big reveal after they've gone through weeks and weeks and weeks of this star chamber audition process in secret in a, in a secure classified space below our Capitol, that that would come up yesterday. And the mainstream media would treat this as some big reveal when the individual is not even going to be brought in to be deposed until sometime later. It shows you that Democrats will change any rule. They'll use the opposition party uh, media to kind of drive any narrative on President Trump. So this is going to come down to power politics. This is going to come down to who actually has the votes in the House of Representatives. And right now, the Democrats do have the majority. And is this a kind of establishment revenge on Donald Trump? Because he and you and the team together in the White House basically put your finger on what was wrong with American foreign policy, that the people of the United States of America didn't want it to be. They didn't want boots on the ground in Afghanistan. They didn't want more boys and girls coming home in body bags. They actually wanted the questions asked that Donald Trump asked, which was, what is the point of being in Afghanistan? And so now that whole Barack Obama and Bill Clinton kind of um, narrative, if you like, had changed forever. Mike, this, it's even deeper than that. This is about managed decline. And this is why Brexit in 2016 are inextricably linked. You know, we covered a Brexit, you know, I said a Breitbart London, covered it extensively. In fact, Raheem Kassam, who is now one of our leaders here in the war room of following this in the United States, was actually my managing editor at, uh, at Breitbart time, he had been a right-hand man of Nigel Farage. We had followed this kind of populist revolt in, uh, in the United Kingdom for years. It really was the, uh, uh, was the uh, set the president for, for President Trump, and that's all we knew when Brexit happened, that you really had this populist uh, momentum in the United States that could win there. So Brexit and 2016 have always been inextricably linked, and they've moved kind of in the same pattern. Uh, you, you know, it shouldn't be lost on your audience that on Halloween, on, you know, three years after you guys voted for it, on the same day that Nancy Pelosi brought the formal charges for the formal inquiry into Trump's uh, impeachment was the day that you did not leave the European Union and essentially new elections were called. These two things are about managed decline. And you can see right now it's, it's very ironic that you're going to have a national election on the 12th of December, which will be within a few days of when they bring the formal charges against President Trump and the Democratic House tries to tries to vote it. So the, these two efforts, and this is the established order, and, it, and it's, it's, it's joint party. You can see in the United Kingdom where some of the more uh, traditional uh, Tory parties kind of sided with, we don't want to leave Europe. That's what's happened in the United States. A lot of this has been the foreign policy of the permanent political class in the United States, whether they were Republican or Democrat, normally driven by the needs of the city of London or Wall Street and the global corporatists. Uh, and so that's why this this is a battle that I think is a joint battle, and you kind of see parallels in it. And as if by magic, Hillary Clinton showed up in London uh, promoting a new book about powerful women, which bizarrely didn't include Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and she's been telling everyone, well, you know what? Uh, there's still time to save the relationship with the European Union. Donald Tusk comes out this morning and says, you know, there's still time to stop Brexit. There are still people uh, who are wanting this not to happen. If you think, and I said this back in 16, if people in the United Kingdom and people in the United States, if the deplorables think that just winning one election, they're going to sit there and say, what a fantastic idea. We're just going to toss you the keys and, and go for it. You're sadly mistaken. This is going to be a long-term process. It took as many, many, many decades to get in this situation. And it's going to take as many decades to get out. It's not going to be any one election. You're going to have to put your shoulder to the wheel. You're going to have to work. And you're going to have to mobilize. I mean, 
look, we won in 2016 in the United States essentially by 79,000 votes in five counties and three states. Okay, we lost the midterm elections in 18, and that's why they're impeaching Donald Trump, because elections have consequences. We have to mobilize people for this impeachment effort right now to make sure President Trump is not removed from office. In addition, then we have to take that momentum and win in 2020, just like in the United Kingdom, you're going to have to win on December 12th. This is, you know, every time I give a talk to the deplorables, it's that, hey, the Hillary Clintons of the world have been in power for decades, and they're not going to give it up. I mean, she is now thinking, the reason she's in the United Kingdom on this book tour is she's now trying to generate interest among her donors for her to actually enter the presidential race after Mike Bloomberg entered last week to really run against President Trump. Right, it's a fascinating situation. What do you make of Nigel Farage's uh, campaign so far? What do you make of the deal? Uh, he called it a unilateral deal that he did with Boris Johnson to stand down some Brexit uh, candidates in order to help the Tories win. Well, I think people have to really look at what the deal is and what you really want to try to accomplish in, in leaving the European Union. I think with Nigel, at least the math I look at, you're talking about a potential 100-seat majority that could really give the Tories in some sort of combination of some of the other smaller parties like Brexit and DUP, a real governing majority, not just to lead the European Union, but to deal with immigration and to deal with a whole host of issues to really revitalize uh, the economy and, uh, and to really take the United Kingdom to the next level, which I think is all out there in front of it. I, it seems to me when you look at it, uh, anytime you can get that type of majority, particularly in today's politics, where you really need to mobilize, and it always helps to have a majority. If you just look at the math, and I think what I've seen is Nigel's talking about a 40-seat, uh, they would contest 40 seats in these, in these labor districts, that maybe the Tories couldn't be too competitive. It has a certain internal logic to it. Now, obviously, you have, when you have these different parties, they have people inside the parties that are sometimes more loyal to the party than to the overall, what we're trying to accomplish. I know today, I guess it's 4 o'clock in London is the deadline, and, and hopefully... You know, you have leaders like Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage who are very sophisticated, very savvy about this. You know, hopefully uh, this thing will get worked out today. And what about Jeremy Corbyn's role in all of this? Because he's not really an establishment figure. Uh, many people in the Labour Party say that they would prefer to have a different leader, but his followers are very much like the kind of followers you like. They're the kind of people uh, who are quite uh, sort of, you know, driven by the ideology, driven by what he wants to do to change Britain. Well, listen, there's two, there's two, you know, populism, and you see this in the United States in the, in the campaign that looks like it's, it's uh, uh, evolving in 2020. You know, populism is here when you look in, in continental Europe, or you look in, in South America, you look in the United States. It's, but it's a difference between populism on the right and populism on the left. Remember, one of the cornerstones of Trump's populist movement is what we call deconstruction of the administrative, uh, administrative state. We're trying to get the state out of people's lives. Right. It, it should be there for trade deals. It should be there for the necessities of government. It should be there to, to try to make things better. But this overweening nanny state is what holds back the entrepreneurial spirit and what holds back the potential to really have growth and to, you know, to spread prosperity down to work, middle class and working class people, which is so essential. On the left, you see this, whether it's in Bernie Sanders or now Elizabeth Warren and Jeremy Corbyn, it's just more state intervention. And, and look, I come from a working class family. In the United States, my dad was basically with the phone company for 50 years. And uh, you know, we were Democrats for many, many decades. In fact, the vast majority of my family are kind of Irish Catholic, working class Democrats. Uh, but we're a big believer in that, you know, get the state out of the way so the entrepreneurial spirit can be there and try to drive growth. So people like Corbyn, I, I equate to, to almost uh, a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. The thing I think is dangerous 
is that you've seen this kind of what I call cultural Marxism uh, come into the situation, which really I think is is very much anti the underlying the underlying things of the Judeo Christian West and, and our values. And so that's why these these fights now that are between populists are so important for populists on the right to continue to win these elections and continue to mobilize. Because the language that people use is becoming very important in this country now. People are being criticized for using certain words. Uh, if you come from one side of the political spectrum, uh, they like to control what you say. Uh, I won't have any of that, but that is a big, big problem now in this country. Yeah, listen, political correctness is the way they try to try to limit speech and try to limit debate. Look, I'm a, big, a huge believer in democracy. Look, we won in 16, and I have done nothing but give accolades to the left who really mobilized and worked like the Tea Party worked in 2010. In 2010, we had the beginnings of this populist revolt by working-class people on the right, where we won 62 seats in the House of Representatives in our Congress, which is the biggest since the Great Depression. The, the left really did the same, uh, the, the same effort, although they had the backing of George Soros and Mike Bloomberg. They had more money than we had. But it was about mobilization, going door to door. And in today's digital politics in the United States, still what's most powerful is going to a door, knocking on a door, and talking to people about your candidates. In 2018, the midterms, the left did that. And here's the reason, Mike. They believe something the Republican establishment doesn't believe. They believe that Donald Trump, is a transformative figure and historic president. And they will do anything. They will knock on any door. They will do anything they have to do, work 24 hours a day to remove him from office because they understand with his work on putting federal judges into the judiciary in the deconstruction administrative state that he's going to be in their personal lives 10, 20, 30 years from now. And so they will do anything to try to remove him from office. I don't agree with their ideology. But I admire the work ethic, and that's why I keep telling people on our side: if you if you if you want to win, you just you can't sit there and whine. You can't sit there and say, "Oh my gosh, you've got to put your shoulder to the wheel." If you put your shoulder to the wheel and you work this every day and dedicate part of your life to this, you're good, good things are going to happen. You're going to have victory, but you're going to have to get engaged. You're going to have to get engaged emotionally, and you're going to have to get engaged not just by writing checks and giving donations. You're going to have to get engaged by your personal time to make sure that you save your country. I was reading Bob Woodward's book, Fear, which you figure in quite a large part, uh, Steve, and he was saying that basically it was you, more or less in 2016, who convinced, alone convinced Donald Trump to stay in the race after the Access Hollywood tapes came out uh, with that famous phrase that we can't repeat on the radio. But basically, um, if it wasn't for you, he might not even have continued with the campaign. Well, it, look, that, that was a very dark day, and I take pride in the fact President Trump's a fighter. He, he would have never quit. But people can't uh, believe the pressure that came from the Republican establishment for him to step down that weekend. And, and look, he was never going to quit. He's not a quitter. In fact, he's a closer. And that, would, that happened, I think, with three or four weeks to go in the campaign. It got us refocused. He then went on a barnstorming tour in the upper Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa. And we turned those Democratic states into Republican victories. You know, Donald Trump is the best politician we've had since, uh, since Ronald Reagan. And he really brought his message, which is he speaks in a very plain, straightforward vernacular. It's not this political mumbo-jumbo uh, that both Republicans and certainly Democrats have been speaking. And so if you get Trump on a stage and let him make his case directly to the American people, it, people understood this was about managed decline, and they didn't want to see America decline. They wanted to see America, you know, return America to a form of greatness, and that's why they voted for Trump. But there were very dark days, and the Republican establishment, you see this right now, even in this in this fight, they tolerate Trump. They don't really support him. The, the established order in the Republican Party 
have never been a fan of Trump's policies towards China or uh, Trump's policies towards immigration, his efforts to build the wall, and particularly about getting out of these endless foreign wars, Not, not backing out of our alliances, but reinforcing our alliances to be real allies and not to have these countries as protectorates. And this is a huge battle in the United States right now. It's what's driving this impeachment process. And can he survive this impeachment process? And just on a personal note, Steve, what's your relationship with Donald Trump like now? Well, I think, look, he said the other day, I'm his, uh, I'm his number one student and he loves working with me. So, But I've, I've kept the arm's distance from the White House. And the reason is I want some independence to do this the way I think it has to be done. And I'm, I think people will tell you I'm the number one supporter of the president throughout the country. I have this organization that does nothing but pushes his ideas and his philosophies every day. And it's given us the independence to set this, this war room up and really galvanize the Trump movement to help support him. He's got a full-time job, as you saw yesterday when he had the president of uh, Turkey at the White House. And so our efforts here is to, is to support the president. But people have to realize this, and this, this is only now being grasped by his followers here. The way our system works, Nancy Pelosi has the votes to bring two articles of impeachment and actually to formally impeach him, not removing the office, but to actually pass it to the Senate for a trial. And right now, she's on a path to do that. And you saw yesterday, I believe this thing opened as a huge flop to the Democrats. But last night, they're just sitting there going, we got it. They're going to drive this very quickly to have these hearings in the next two or three weeks and to then bring charges on him around the same time you will vote in the United Kingdom, around December 12th to 15th, then debate it, and then, I think, bring two articles to vote to impeach him sometime before Christmas, pass that over to the United States Senate for a trial, and that trial will take place in January, and maybe, I think, in right up by the time of the Iowa, uh, the Iowa caucuses to kick off the 2020 year to try to hurt President Trump. They will not remove him from office. What they hope to do is damage him enough that he will lose in 2020. And so this thing's full on. But I got to tell you right now, for people following this in the United Kingdom, this shows you the importance of winning elections. Right now, President Trump, through no facts, is going to get impeached by the Democrats simply for the fact that we lost the 2018 elections in the House of Representatives. It's going to be an incredible fight. I can see why you're calling your podcast The War Room. One final question, Steve. A lot of my mates in the media are asking me if you're going to buy the Daily Telegraph. Well, if the Daily Telegraph is actually for sale, people should understand. I think the Daily Telegraph is one of the great untapped brands uh, in the world. It's a, it's a fantastic paper. Uh, I think it could speak to a global audience of populism and economic nationalism throughout the world in many, many countries. I've had the honor to go around and to, to work with a lot of these leaders. I think the Telegraph's uh, a brand. Uh, the, the, the reality is owned by some very sophisticated, smart people. It's about really what their what their attempts because uh, I think the media may be misrepresenting sometimes their their actual uh, how eager they are to sell this. But uh, yes, it would be something that you know I've had a pretty good run in media so far. Uh, I've had a lot of media opportunities presented to me that I've turned down. But if the possibility is there, we will certainly take a look at it because it's a great it's a great untapped brand, not just in the United Kingdom but throughout the world. That brand I think really speaks. Uh, to, to, to conservative values, and uh, there's a burgeoning market of conservative values throughout the world. So if it's a possibility, you know, from my Goldman Sachs and investing days, I've, I've done a lot of work in media, put a lot of money to work in media, uh, and had a pretty good run at it. So we'd love to take a look if it's actually for sale. Okay, Steve, thank you very much indeed. Steve Bannon uh, calling us from uh, Washington, D.C., of course, where the second part of the Trump impeachment hearing will take place later on today. What did you make of what Steve Bannon had to say? He's talking about fighting the good fight. He's talking about uh, conservatism spreading around the world. He's talking uh, about Trump and Brexit being in the same sentence politically 
around the world. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.